If you wanted to outline Paul's letter to Romans like so far, you'd probably say that chapter 1, verses 1 through 15 was the introduction. Chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 is like the statement, the thesis statement, like this is what the book's all about, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, which is the gospel and justification by faith. Yes? Oh, if you haven't gone to children's church and you're supposed to go, go ahead. Yeah, everybody was supposed to go earlier. If you are second to fourth grade, you can go. Bye, Morgan. Have fun. Take your time. We'll wait. And then after the thesis statement in 16 and 17, the first major section is from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. And that's where we've been lately. That's a lot of space, and it's all devoted to explaining the human condition, man's standing before God. You might call it the bad news section, but it is more importantly meant to be really a wake-up call. There's a subtle, tragic part of human nature that is resistant to admitting that we are indeed wretched creatures in this world. In terms of righteousness, moral excellence in heart and in attitude and mind and in action, we are like cancerous cells in God's universe, always corrupting, always destroying, always perverting God's good world. But we don't like to admit that. And when the Bible uses expressions like... Uh, Romans chapter 3 verse 11 where it says all have turned aside or if you see language like Isaiah 53 6 where it says all of us like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way when you see language like that it's describing that part of us that profound part of us that wants to make our own rules to determine our own course to follow our own path it's to um, uh, there's a big word autonomy Auto means self, and namas is a Greek word. It means law, a law unto yourself. That's what people want, to be a law unto themselves. If you combine these two human realities, moral corruption and autonomy, what do you get? A, a big mess. That's what you come up with, a, a, a disaster. And you also have a necessary and compelling desire to deny reality. And that's why in chapter 1, verse 18, the very first thing Paul says in this big section on the human condition is that men suppress the truth because they're unrighteous. They suppress the truth. The desire to be free of God is stronger than the desire for truth. That's one of the things I liked so much about Mortimer Adler and what just was so outstanding about him was he was pursuing truth to the end. And of course, it took him 80 years, but that end was Jesus Christ because he believed in truth. But what most people do is suppress the truth. They squelch it. They crush it down. They push it down. And in the place of God, men create religions. Religion that gives expression to our spiritual nature, which is God-given, but which also retains for oneself some vestige of autonomy or control or influence or power. If you look at Paul's words in chapter 1, verse 21, he says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became 
fools, he says, and exchanged, and here's the idea, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They literally changed God, and this is what everybody really does in their heart, they changed God for something less than God. And in the ancient world, it might have been some statue of a bug or a crow or something. And in the modern world, it's some god that we invent out of our own minds. We just, uh, cafeteria-style, pick out attributes we want him to have and throw them on him and say, that's the god I worship. We just make him up, in other words. We're exchanging the real god for a god that is in our own ideas, our own choosing. Now, this madness, this exchange of truth for lies, this exchange of the real god for human inventions is claimed on the part of men to be wise. That's what he's saying, professing to be wise. We are wise to worship rocks or statues or trees or ourselves. Or in more modern times, we'd say we are wise to believe that opposite propositions, things that are actually totally impossible for both of them to be true, are really both true. That's the modern mind. We think that's very wise. It's insane, but it's wise. We are wise to declare that all claims to truth are equally true. That's what we believe. And ancient or modern, that, that underlying heart condition which leads to all of this silliness is pride, this desire for autonomy, to go our own way, to tell God to keep his distance, and we'll call on you when we need you, but we're going to do our own thing first, which is just pride. We know you made us, and we know you made everything around us, and you sustain it all with wondrous power every day, granting us the very air we breathe, but frankly, we'd rather do it on our own and be ourselves, so take a hike. That's really what it is. And you see, whether it's ancient or modern or primitive or civilized or superstitious or scientific, there is in all of it a claim to power for self. Uh, self-exaltation. We want the privilege of boasting. Boasting in our wisdom, boasting in our virtue, or our own cleverness. Even a poor native somewhere, bound under the terrors of shamanism and witch doctors and all of that, has something that he can do to accrue power to himself. He can offer the right bribe to the spirits. He can perform the right incantations or ceremonies. He can offer the right kind of sacrifices. In some sense, if he succeeds in what he's doing, he can pride himself on manipulating the powers around him that control the universe. Or take the civilized scientific man who has a genuine disdain for spiritual things. He's got it all figured out. Everything, everything is an accidental combination of forces, chemicals and time, out of which, in a great collision of some sort, springs, guess what, us, the highest beings we know of through science. Being so incredible that we are to the point where we believe we can guide and control and manipulate our own evolution. So morality, as Dewey did teach and his education teaches today, is strictly utilitarian. Whatever works is what's right. It's adaptable and it's governed by enlightened opinion, not eternal truths. And again, self-exaltation is the core of that. And then there's the modern religious man who believes in everything, who is the most horrible four-letter word of all, open. I'm open, you know. He can find power in crystals, in stars, in the weird tarot card lady on TV, on meditation, on whatever, but whatever it all has in common is 
unleashing his own inner divinity. And again, the point is self-exaltation. He's open to God because he is God, he thinks. Now, Christianity, genuine Christianity, biblical Christianity, historic Christianity, is opposed to all that, all of it. The Bible asserts in the plainest terms that man is not God. He is a rebel against God and stands under the wrath of God and is completely unable to extricate himself from his doom. That's bad news. In fact, it's even worse than that because he doesn't want to extricate himself from this doom. To use Paul's terms, chapter 1, verse 20, man is without excuse. Chapter 1, verse 21, man is foolish and darkened in his heart. Chapter 2, verse 1, he is self-condemned because he breaks his own rules. Chapter 2, verse 5 of Romans, he is stubborn and unrepentant. Or to use the word that Jesus used to describe human beings, evil. Man is evil. You see, in a biblical framework, no human being has anything in himself to credit or take pride in or boast about. Nothing. That's why the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus' manifesto of the kingdom, if you will, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the great sermon of Jesus Christ, begins with these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God of heaven. And if you were with us in Matthew chapter 5, how many years ago was that? <laughs> five years ago? Six years ago? Long time ago. The seven or eight of you that were with us in Matthew chapter 5, you'll remember that poor, he, he use, doesn't use the word just for poor. The word poor is a word for extreme poverty. I mean, utter destitution. The, the Greeks had different words for levels of poorness. And this is a person that has nothing, has zero resources. And it's the same word used of Lazarus in the New Testament when Jesus tells that story about the man that was lying outside the rich man's house, laying in the street, begging for food, and the dogs were licking his sores. I mean, he had nothing. That's the word that's used. Blessed are the utterly destitute, bankrupt in spirit. What's blessed about that? Because that person has a chance. That person knows that they have nothing to pride themselves in. They have no exaltation for themselves. They know they're not God. And they're, they're available to hear the truth. They're open to the real God. Destitute. Jesus is describing a condition of absolute spiritual poverty. Because that man can find the path of salvation. The truth of the human condition is why Proverbs chapter 3 verse 5, which is a very well known verse to Christian people, it says, trust in the Lord with what? All your might, all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. And then it says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil and it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. So a complete, unfailing trust in God is the only right path because autonomy is ruinous because it takes us away from God. That is a very specific and direct advice. Lean on him and not on yourself. My favorite Old Testament verse in all the Bible is Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. And it tells us where God lives. And listen really carefully. It says, Thus says 
This is God speaking. Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. And here's what he says. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. Two places. In order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isn't that wonderful? That's exactly what Mortimer Adler was talking about. He says, other monotheistic religions have a transcendent universal God. He dwells in a high and holy place. But Christianity says, and I dwell with, with the lowly of spirit and the contrite, those who are broken over their own sinfulness. I will dwell with them too. The common thread in all of these texts is true humility from the Sermon on the Mount to Proverbs to Isaiah 57. And I believe that much of what humility means really is just seeing things as God sees them. Pride asserts our own understanding of things according to our own opinions and desires, often our own vices. But humility puts the whole universe back in the right order. It puts God first. And shouldn't God be first? That seems like a, so obvious, but it's not the reality for so many people. Well, earlier we were talking about the structure of Romans. Paul was explaining from Romans 1.18 to 3.20 that man's condition is, a, is that of a condemned sinner. He was especially concerned with those relying on God's law for their salvation. And if you look at chapter 3, verse 20, he says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. The law reveals man as a sinner, and that calls down on man the wrath of God. Man is devoid of true righteousness. The disposition of, heart, of his heart is not holiness. The disposition of his heart is wickedness. But in chapter 3, verse 21, then the message starts to change, and this is the good news. And the good news lasts us for a lot more chapters, so hang on there. But Paul starts to explain in verse 21 what his thesis statement was in verse 17 that the righteous shall live by faith. And in one remarkable sentence, very tightly wrapped sentence, he gives us the gospel of God's grace. Verse 21 says, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. It's Old Testament stuff too. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, last week we went through that whole paragraph. And if you weren't here, get the tape or something if you want to know. It's great stuff. But the idea is, key words, the righteousness of God, not our righteousness, but his, key word, faith, Keyword Jesus Christ, keyword believe. But the key line is really verse 24 being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Justified means, that word means to be declared righteous. 
That is to stand before God judicially in a court of law sense and God looks at you and when he opens up the books, you're righteous. Not in yourself, but in Jesus Christ. His righteousness is applied to you. Vindicated. You're free. No barriers to God. You're justified. Justified means being right with God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So there it is. God can make wicked people righteous because Jesus redeemed them. Paid the price to purchase their freedom. It's the greatest story ever told. And what's even better about it is it's true. Jesus, who was God in human flesh, satisfied the demands of justice, God bearing the penalty of sin himself for his creatures. And with justice satisfied, God can grant vindication and liberty to men as a gift. It is freely bestowed on undeserving people. And that's grace. The word grace means undeserved favor. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to be nice to you. That's grace. It's being gracious. Being justified as a gift by his grace. So what does all this mean? Salvation is holy. Now I'm talking W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy. Holy, the work of God. It's holy too, but it's holy, the work of God. He brings to our tribunal before him, our, our court before him, and we stand before him. When you have Jesus Christ in, as your Savior, he brings his righteousness to bear. Which he stands on as a basis to die for your sins, his own righteousness. And that's what redeems you. If it helps, think of it as a debt that you owe to divine justice. And somebody coming along and just paying off your debt. That's very much the idea. Not because he deserved it, but because he's gracious. I was watching this program on PBS the other night called uh, Queen Victoria's Empire, because I just like that era. It's just interesting to me. And it was all about, had all these interesting characters. Now, this is a modern show, so they thought they were all weirdos. But it had all these great Christian men from the Victorian era who were prominent in England, one of whom was General Gordon, Chinese Gordon, who was this incredible man who went to Khartoum and gave his life and all this stuff. But, but the thing about Gordon was they said he was rather odd because he would go into the slums of London and pick up these little starving children in these little hovel holes living on the ground and he would take them home and clothe them and feed them and wash them and, and pay for their entire education and raise them up and make them his own children. He just did that as a hobby, if you will. And they said, very strange. They called it strange. Like he was a weirdo for doing that because he was this great general. I mean, he was an, an, an infam a world-famous general because of his work in China. They called him Chinese Gordon. Absolutely never carried a weapon, just a cane. Onward men, one of those kind of guys. He you know, just led these guys and created this whole army of Chinese soldiers and stuff. And uh, what's amazing is they think that's weird, but that's just being gracious. He's just looking for people that their culture considered unworthy. Street urchins, you know, the lower classes. And here's this man who condescended to go down and, and rescue people. That's exactly what God does. He rescues the unrighteous, the unworthy. So while we lacked righteousness, God puts his righteousness on display. That's the language Paul uses a couple times here. Verse 25, God displayed Christ publicly. 
as one who would turn away his wrath. In verse 26, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The rescue of wicked men is his work then from the beginning to the end. It's a gift that he gives us. How do we receive the gift? By faith. Verse 22, through faith. Verse 25, through faith. Verse 26, the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. So faith enables us to receive the gift. That's what Mortimer Adler was saying earlier. He says, I had a philosophical understanding of God's existence, but faith is when I, he became my God, and I worshiped and prayed and loved him. Faith sees things the way God does. Faith sees that we are wicked, that we are undeserving, that we do stand self-condemned. Faith recognizes that our rebellion has been fruitless, and our path has been a poorly chosen path. Faith sees the absolute need for a righteousness that is outside of us because we just don't have it. We just don't. And finally, faith, faith lays down all the weapons of rebellion against God. It just surrenders. All the self-sufficiency lays it down. All the pride lays it down and says yes to God, to the Heavenly Father whom we've been rebelling against all along. Faith says, yes, I want to come home. Thank you for providing a way for me to come home. I accept the gift. That can't be done without humility or surrender. Thus says the high and exalted one whose name is holy, who lives forever. I dwell in a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the heart of the contrite and to revive the spirit of the lowly. God dwells with the humble to revive them. What does the word revive mean? It means new life, to bring new life. Now, once we have laid our weapons aside and knelt humbly before our offended Lord and received his love and his forgiveness and gladly and freely given by him, then we are changed people. And all that is ugly about religion begins to fall away. Verse 27, Paul says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. Boasting becomes nonsense. Holier-than-thou attitudes drop away. Churchianity gives away to Christianity. If it's really true that none are righteous as Paul says in chapter 3 here, if it's really true that all of sin, as verse 23 says, if it's really true that salvation is all of grace, granted as a gift, well then who can boast? That's what he's saying. Where is boasting? It is excluded. If salvation comes by law-keeping, by virtue, then boasting is natural. I'm saved and you're not because I am better than you. That's just logical if that's how salvation comes. You are weak and wicked. I am controlled and holy. Paul understands this so well because it had been his life. He used to think that way. He lived that way. He taught that way as a Pharisee, as a rabbi, that the pure were better and the wicked were worse and they were doomed and he was going to make it. He was one of the purified. That's really what Pharisee means, one of the purified. But when Paul met Jesus, all that went away because he found out that he was a wicked man. Even in the midst of all this religious stuff he was doing. And here this self-righteous man became a man that called himself the chief of what? Sinners, right? 
God saved Paul by an act of divine grace, and that left no room for pride. So he says, where then is boasting? It's excluded. You see, real humility has a theological basis. Everything good has a theological basis. Some people think theology is unimportant, but it's not. It's everything. Beliefs always find their way into your attitudes and eventually into your actions. But boasting is excluded by doctrine. What Paul calls the law of faith in verse 27. And he explains that law in verse 28, a sentence that is simple, straightforward, clear, and in all that simplicity and straightforwardness and clarity, it literally, that sentence launched the Reformation. The Reformation that changed the world. 28. For we maintain that a man is justified, made right with God, vindicated, justified, by faith, apart from works of the law. There it is. A man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And that great truth will drive away all arrogance. Now, I've met people that believe that doctrine or say they do and still come off a little proud and arrogant. And those people need to be real careful. In fact, I've even caught myself being proud and arrogant once. Maybe more than once. But that's why this doctrine, this truth, that salvation is a gift of God's grace and not something that we earn by law-keeping has to be revisited and reaffirmed often. It has to become a source of Christian meditation and thought and reflection over and over again. And frankly, and I say this with great care, where, where spiritual pride repeatedly surfaces and an attitude of personal superiority reigns supreme, you might be dealing with someone who's never really agreed with God about his own wickedness and his own need for grace, about sin and salvation. Because people can say the right thing and it not be in their hearts, and it's a very great danger, and it's something to watch out for in ourselves. C.S. Lewis made a really good comment about this. I just want to read this for you. He said, in God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you can't see something that's above you. That raises a terrible question, he says. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear themselves to be very religious? I'm afraid it means they're worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but they're really all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks them far better than ordinary people. That is, they pay a penny worth of imaginary humility to him and get out of it a pound's worth of pride toward their fellow men. I suppose it was of those people Christ was thinking when he said that some would preach about him and cast out devils in his name only to be told at the end of the world that he had never known them. Matthew chapter 7. And any of us may at any moment be in this death trap. Luckily, we have a test. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I th we think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether, he says. God's grace 
excludes boasting. And the more we strengthen our understanding of grace, the more successful will be our battle with pride. Some people get real shaky with Paul's theology. They, they, they start to get uncomfortable and they say, well, you know, if you start telling people that salvation is a gift, if you tell them the truth, and it's all faith and no law, you're just going to have people doing whatever they want to do in the name of grace. And you know, there are people like that. But the truth is that people with faith People who understand who God is and what he's done for us in Christ, people, they're incapable of having that attitude about grace. They are. They're incapable of it. Because they're so grateful and their heart is so devoted to the God that saved them when they didn't deserve it that they would never cross their minds to do wickedness in his face. We do sin and stumble, but it grieves us to do so. That's the difference. It's an old accusation against the gospel. It was there when Paul first preached it. In fact, when we get to chapters 6, 7, and 8, that's really what he's dealing with in Romans. That whole, if you say it's grace, then everybody's going to do whatever they want. People that use grace as a cover for sin are, are, are mere pretenders. They're not genuine, genuine Christians. Grace not only grants justification. When God gives grace to a person that's saving, it, it actually changes the heart. And it gives us a holy disposition instead of a wicked disposition. In other words, we're leaning his way instead of leaning the other way. Not that we're perfect, but our heart is different. Our affections are different. And all that too is from God. He does that. So there's no boasting. These final verses in chapter 3 touch on this issue just a little bit. Paul, since chapter 2, verse 17, he's really been talking to Jewish people, his fellow Jews. They were relying on law-keeping as a way to get to heaven, and Paul was earnestly showing them how foolish and how futile that was to do that. And it's difficult to persuade them because they were proud men, and he knew it because he was one of them once. A proud Jewish man, proud of his birth, proud of his tradition, proud of his law, the law that God gave them and didn't give to other people. But law doesn't save a sinner. If you break it, it can only reveal sin which is a good thing, but it's not a saving thing. So Paul offers them what God did in Christ, God's righteousness in the gospel in place of their own unrighteousness, or what you might call their self-righteousness. He's still reasoning with them in these closing verses. Look at 29. We're almost done here. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised, the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. God isn't a national deity. He rules over all creation. All people are from him, not just the Jews, and they really knew that. The law came to the Jews, but the gospel is for everybody. And in faith, God calls all people to himself and extends his saving righteousness to every land and every group of people. Isn't that Saying that the law then is worthless? That would be the argument. Aren't you saying the law is worthless? And the Jew would naturally ask that question. It's a reasonable question. Aren't you saying the law is no good if it's all of faith? And then Paul says, verse 31, do we nullify the law through faith? Are we saying it's no good? No! That's what may it never be means. No! He says, on the contrary, and here's the last words of the chapter, we establish the law. We put the law in its proper place. The gospel of grace 
does not diminish the law. It gives the law all the weight and majesty that it deserves as an expression of God's moral will. If the gospel was anti-law, then Christ's death would be meaningless, really. It would be a bloody show, an unnecessary, brutal feast of blood for no reason. What would be the purpose of it? The purpose of it is that the law is so valid it's so important that Christ had to die to fulfill it, the obligations of it, the penalty of breaking it. The, cro- the cross is a public demonstration, a public fulfillment of the demands of the law. You look at the cross and you say, that's what lawbreakers deserve. And nothing would exalt the importance of the law more than that. So Paul says, we're establishing the law. Christ bore the penalty of the law, which not only saves it, it establishes the law's validity. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Just a little while after he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. He said, do not think, just in case somebody thinks so, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets, right? He said, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. He not only lived it, but then he fulfilled it by paying the penalty of it on our behalf. He didn't dismiss the law. He lived it. Every nook and cranny of it, he kept it all as a perfect spotless lamb, which is also part of the law. And he bore the penalty of all who had faith in him. So, all is as it should be, and God's work and plan exalt his justice fully, Paul is saying, and give full expression of his mercy. So, Here's the last word. Love the doctrine of justification by grace through faith because it will cleanse you of every rotten thing that people see in religion. And there's plenty of rotten things in it. It will transform your heart to understand this great truth and in ways probably that you won't even expect because there's no way for boasting if all is God's work, if it all goes back to him. Well, we've seen a lot of bad news in the book of Romans, but now we're really into the good news part, okay? So, and it's a wondrous part of the good news of the gospel is this. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great truth that Paul has given us. And Lord, we just pray that you would um, extend to us the grace to get a hold of this, to know what it means for us, to appreciate it, to treasure it, because it's life-changing. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.